Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for the book of Philippians. Thank you for all the things that we've learned, all the teaching about joy, all the teaching about unity, of, of having the single mind. And now, Lord, as we're coming toward the end of the book, we pray you'd continue to teach us, speak to us. Help me, Father, today to, uh, to be filled with your spirit, to say the things I ought to, uh, I ought to say and nothing more. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. Uh, just, just help this day, this part of our, of our service today to be uh, useful, profitable. Strong, speak to us, Lord, in a, in a mighty way. I pray. There are some things in here that I pray you'll get hold of my heart with. I thank you the way you got hold of my heart in the study of it. But I pray even now, as we as we go over it again, that you'd speak to me and you'd speak also to these who are here in the room with me. Uh, teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently had to fill out some paperwork uh, to obtain a license. And one of the things that I had to fill out on there was my name. And then I had to provide my address. It's a common requirement, isn't it? Whether you're filling out paperwork for, uh, I don't know, some financial thing, legal stuff, applying for a loan, filling out insurance papers, whatever it might be. Where do you live is one of the questions you always have to answer. And so let me add to the list this morning and ask you, where do you live? Where do you live? Paul states something interesting about that topic here in this passage. He says that no matter where you might think you live, your real address is not here. It's in heaven. You might fill out an earthly address when you're applying for that loan, but that's not your address. I don't advise putting heaven down when you're filling out a paperwork for a loan, but it's really not your address. You might give somebody a street number and, a, and, a, and, a, and that kind of a physical address, to punch into their GPS when you're trying to direct them to your home, but that's really not where you live. That's not your address. Where do you live? It's an interesting question, because I think your answer to that question, my answer to that question, determines an awful lot about us and affects every other part of our lives. Actually, in this passage, I think I see Paul answering or asking a couple of questions, three really, and that's actually the second of the three. So I want to look at all three of them, but that where do you live, that's the one. That is central. I want you to be thinking about that question. Here's the questions that he asks. First of all, he asks, who are you following? Then, where do you live? And finally, what are you waiting for? We'll look at all three of those in that order. First of all, who are you following? Verses 17 through 19. Who are you following? Earlier in the letter, Paul had said some very pointed things about false teachers. We saw a lot of that back in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3 here, verse number 2. He was talking about the Judaizers there. Uh, those people who were teaching that circumcision was something needed to be added to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to God Christ's finished work on the cross in order to be saved. 
And so he had nothing good to say about them at the beginning of the chapter. And now we come here to the end of the chapter, and I think he's, he's, he's really talking about the same group of people. The, the, the jury is out, and scholars are not sure exactly who he's talking about here, uh, but that seems to be the case. He started here in verse number 17 with an interesting thing. He said, brethren, join in following my example. He says, follow me. Follow my example. It seems that he was contrasting there his right example with the wrong examples of some of these others. And maybe it was those Judaizers that he had talked about in the first three verses. Follow my example. Now, to some of us, when we read that, we might think, well, how arrogant. What a disgusting thing to say. He sure is stuck on himself. But remember, Paul has already confessed back in verse number 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. He has already confessed that he's not perfect. He's not trying to put himself as, as forth as something that he is not. His desire always was that to the extent he followed Christ, those, the people that were, that were within his uh, ministry orbit should follow him. His ultimate goal was always that people would follow Christ first. By following his example of following Christ. He told the Corinthians precisely that. He said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And so Paul starts here by providing himself as and others like him. He says others also. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, others like him, others who were following in his, in his footsteps. He starts by providing those, himself and those, as positive examples to be followed. And then he turns his attention to the opposite side of that argument. He once again warned the Philippian church about false teachers. And I think he does so here by once again telling them just how serious an issue false teachers and false teaching really is. Look at verse number 18. For many walk. I think we ought to perhaps underline that word many in our Bibles. Many. Because it reminds us the problem was not then and is not now trivial. It's not minor. There were and are many false teachers. That word alone ought to wake us up to the significance of the problem he's describing here. We also ought to underline the last phrase in verse number 18. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a serious thing to teach false doctrine. It's not a minor problem when someone stands in a pulpit or behind a microphone or in front of a camera and teaches something that is not true. Some, some Such people might profess Christ. They might profess to know and love Christ. But Paul says here they're the opposite. He says they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Just this week, I read a news article some of you probably read the same thing about a woman. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. I think it's Eva Brune, B-R-U-N-N-E. She was described as the first lesbian bishop of a major denomination, in this case the Lutheran Church of Sweden. She was in the news for suggesting that the cross and other Christian symbols should be removed from a church or churches and replaced with Islamic symbols to avoid offending Muslims. Now, of course, it's unfortunate. I don't know what I can believe in the news anymore. I don't know what I read that is true and what is false. It's, it's all so messed up. But if that's true, what an illustration of what we have in Paul's words here. Here's a woman 
who is claiming to be a follower of Christ, but is in reality an enemy of Christ. Someone who professes to believe, but apparently does not. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Was I not the bishop of a church in your name, Lord? Have we not done many wonders in your name, cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Enemies of the cross of Christ. It's interesting the depth of feeling that the Apostle Paul has here. Did you notice? I mean, think about this. This is a letter which is entirely focused on joy and rejoicing. We've said over and over that that is the key to this book. Joy. And rejoicing. And notice what he says in verse number 18. I tell you, I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of Christ. The reality of false teachers and false teaching was such a deep issue for him. It's not trivial. False teachers, false teaching sends people to hell. Paul was aware of that. Paul says here that false teachers are themselves headed for hell. Their end is destruction, he said. In another place he wrote, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse number 9. So it was serious. And so he said here there are those that we should imitate, such as Paul and others like him. And there are those we should avoid, such as the false teachers that Paul was warning about here. And I have to ask, can we tell the difference? Can you tell the difference? Because it's vital. How would we possibly make that determination uh, if we don't know the difference? Paul said these were people whose God is their belly. They were in it for what they could get out of it. Their glory was their shame. In other words, the very things they took pride in and gloried in were the things they ought to have been ashamed of. We certainly see a lot of that. And they set their mind on earthly things. I think that's an interesting phrase. We might have asked Paul about these guys. We might have said, where do they live, Paul? And he would have said, this world, earthly things. But that's not the right answer because then he goes on and he contrasts in verse number 20. And he asks the second question, where do you live? Where do you live? Verse number 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this would have been particularly meaningful to the people he was writing to. Remember, we talked about this several times in earlier studies. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was not physically located uh, in Rome, but it was a colony. Uh, all the people who were, who were residents in Philippi enjoyed Roman citizenship. They were citizens of Rome, and that was a big deal. They had all the privileges and rights of citizenship as a result of that. Now, I know that there are some today who don't think citizenship means anything. And I know that today there's a great battle raging in the halls of our government on the campaign stops of those running for public office over whether being a citizen means anything at all. All but the privilege to be a citizen. I mean, think about it. I have this thing. It's called a passport. I have a passport. It has my picture on it. It has my name in it. It tells all who see it that I am a citizen of the United States of America. I have used that passport to travel to Rome, 
I've used that tra- passport to travel to Israel four different times. I, I've used that passport to travel to Turkey, to England, to Canada, even to the Bahamas a couple times. And I showed it there. I walked into those various places and showed it to the officials in those places. And they recognized me as a citizen of the United States of America. There's something to be said for citizenship. And in like manner, I have a heavenly passport. My name is written therein just the same. It tells all who would read it that I am a citizen of heaven. Jesus said this. Listen to this. Jesus said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. We have a heavenly passport. And that's an interesting word, by the way, where that verse says your name is written. It means it is written forever. The Greek word that is used there yeah, in, in Jesus' words is, is in what's called the perfect tense. And one man noted that that could be translated, it is once for all written and stands written forever. Praise God. We have a heavenly passport. I may never see the, my name in lights or carved on some monument wall. It may never be listed alongside the heroes as history's great deeds are recalled. And if I search through the credits that roll across the screen, my name might never be found. But there is one place. There is one page where it has been written down. My name is written in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God. And that's all that matters to me. So we need to recognize that. Our name, our citizenship is in heaven. Do you see that? That is in direct contrast to what he was saying at the end of the previous section where he was talking about these people who set their mind on earthly things. He's saying that we as citizens of heaven should have our mind on heavenly things rather than earthly things. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy this earth. Doesn't mean we can't... uh, Enjoy the things that we have, mow our lawns, care for the things that make up our daily lives. It does mean, however, that those earthly things should not be our focus. Our focus should be where we really live, in heaven. I believe that the greatest sporting event in the history of the world was the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And you all agree with that because it's true. I, I, I would imagine that if we were to poll a hundred different people about what is the greatest uh, sporting event in the history of the world, you'd probably get a hundred different answers. But unless they mentioned the 1980 Olympic hockey team, they would be wrong because it was the greatest sporting event in the history of the world when the, when the ragtag American team beat the Soviet <laughs> Union team. It was glorious. I remember that like it was yesterday. And there was a movie made about that. We've used this, this, this movie several times as illustrations because there's some good things in there. But the movie was called Miracle, and it told the story of that Olympic hockey team. There's a scene in that movie, which probably most of you have seen. I was going to play it this morning in the sermon, but it had a couple of words in there that I thought might not work. So I left it out. But the scene was, uh, was showing how Coach Herb Brooks was trying to get this ragtag bunch of college players to come together as a team. You have to remember that these guys had, prior to coming together on that Olympic hockey team, they had all played for various colleges. They had been enemies. They had fought against each other. They played against each other. They had rivalries. Some of them hated each other's guts. And uh, now here they were playing on the same team. Coach Brooks had a habit of walking up to one of them and saying, What's your name? Who do you play for? 
So he'd walk up to one and say, what's your name? And he'd say, I'm Jim Craig. Who do you play for? Boston University. And this would go on. Well, eventually they had a, an exhibition there, one of their first times that they played together as a team, and it was an exhibition of one of the teams they might have to play in the Olympics, and they made a hash of it. They didn't do very good at all. And Coach Brooks was very upset. And at the end of that particular uh, game, he, he, everybody was leaving the stadium, and he made the team get back out on the ice. And many of you probably remember this particular scene in the movie. He got them back out on the ice, and he made them start running back and forth sprints. He said, if you don't want to work during the game, I'll make you work now. And so they went back and forth and back and forth, and he would blow the whistle, and back and forth they would go until they were literally throwing up all over the ice. Over and over and over and over this went on. If the movie is correct, it went on for a long, long time, so much so that they actually turned the lights out in the stadium, and they were continuing to skate in the dark. And in between each of these horrendous sprints that he would make them do, he punctuated it by screaming and hollering at them about how they needed to come together as a team. And finally, there came a point. At the very end, the guys were just broken and hobbled, (laughs) crawling all over the ice. And finally, one of the players, his name was Mike Erizioni, he shouted out his name. And Coach Brooks looked at him and said, Who do you play for? And he said, I play for the United States of America. And that's such an amazing illustration to me of this because it made all the difference in the world to those guys when they came to understand who they played for. And it's the same with us. Where do you live? If you understand, if you get it in your mind that we are citizens of heaven, it affects everything else. We don't live here. Things of this earth fade in importance and eternal things loom with significance. Where do you live, my friend? Well, Paul went on. He asked a third question here. Verses, second half of verse 20 and verse 21. He said, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Jesus is coming again. That is our hope. That is what we are waiting for. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come Again, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. To Titus he wrote, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Revelation we read, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Actually, the return of Christ is mentioned in every single New Testament book except just a very short number. It's not mentioned in Galatians, it's not mentioned in Second and Third John, and it's not mentioned in Philemon. But every other New Testament book mentions the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And we need to eagerly wait for it. That's an interesting word that's seen there in verse number 20. We eagerly wait. It's found several other places. Romans chapter 8, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, you come, behind, you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5, we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Hebrews 9, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now, I think this verse is specifically speaking about one aspect of the return of Christ. I think it's speaking about the rapture. I think that's what he's talking about here. The most complete description we have of the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When the rapture takes place, all believers will be caught up. That's what the word rapture means, by the way, to meet Jesus in the air. Those of us who have already died physically before that day are going to burst forth from our graves, and those who have not yet died are going to follow those up, and we're all going to meet Christ in the air. On that day, all believers will be changed. On that day, all believers will receive a wonderful new body, a glorified body, like Christ's body that he had when he resurrected, his resurrection Body. We know that because of 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a day that is going to be. No more disease. No more sin. No more limitations of this rotten flesh. On that day, our sanctification will be complete. On that day, we will have reached the goal line. On that day, he will transform our bodies and make it like his. Now, there's an interesting Bible study for you. Go through the Gospels sometime and write down everything you can see about the body that Jesus had after the resurrection. It's some interesting stuff. It was physical. He ate. He drank. Some people think when we get to heaven, we're just going to sit around on clouds and play harps. Well, that's just hogwash. It's nonsense. We're going to be everything there that we are here, but without sin and with all the perfection God originally intended, we're going to be once again like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. I don't know about you, but I like to eat. When I get to heaven, I'm going to eat. And I think eating there is going to be a lot better than it is here. You know what I think? I think even Carl will learn to like coffee when he gets to heaven. It's just going to be glorious. We're going to have a body like Christ had. And that means that it's going to be physical in every way that's good. And all the bad stuff that we have here will be gone. But it was more than that. Jesus' body was more than that. Jesus could be in one place and immediately disappear and be in another. It was the Star Trek transporter system on steroids. We're going to have a body like that. I mean, glory to God, think about that. On that day... Jesus Christ is going to transform our sick, broken, diseased, 
tempted, foolish, fumbling, failing, stupid bodies into something like his. And he's going to do it using the same power, it says here, that uh, enables him to subdue all of creation. In other words, he's going to use it during the same power that he has that was described back in chapter 2 and verse number 10 when uh, Paul talked about how he was going to make every knee bow to him. Everything is going to be in submission to Jesus Christ. That's the power that he has. And that power is going to transform our broken bodies to be like his body. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to shout. Doesn't that make you want to shout? If you have been born again, you have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. When we get to chapter 4 and verse number 1, and I actually read verse, the first verse because I wanted to make this final concluding point, but we notice there that verse 1 starts out with the word, therefore. And, of course, you know the question that I'm going to ask when we come to the word, therefore. What's that therefore there for? And I'll tell you what it's there for. It's there to remind us that because of all the truths we have in chapter 3, we can stand fast in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren and longed for, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. We can live for Jesus. We can stand fast in Him. We have nothing to fear and we have everything to look forward to and to rejoice in because this world is not our home. Our home is infinitely better. The things this world has to offer are not our prize. We wait for the Savior. We wait for the one who's going to make us whole. I like the account of D.L. Moody's death. Let me read it to you, and then we'll, we'll basically be done. D.L. Moody, of course, was a preacher of the previous century. Founder of Moody Bible Institute and Responsible for many hearing the gospel and coming to Christ. Let me just read this. Moody had been declining for some time, and his family had taken turns being with him. On the morning of his death, his son, who was standing by the bedside, heard him exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. You are dreaming, Father, his son said. Moody answered, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. For a while, it seemed as if Moody was reviving, but he began to slip away again. And he said, is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. And by this time, his daughter was present, and she began to pray for his recovery. And he said, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. And shortly after that, he was received up into heaven. Christian, I ask you this morning. Where do you live? Where do you live? Hmm. If we get our minds around that vital truth, and we need to get our minds around it, that our citizenship is in heaven, it affects everything else. And what are you waiting for? Are you eagerly waiting for the Savior? Does the impending rapture and all it promises motivate you at all? Get your mind around it. You are going to experience the rapture. Every Christian is going to experience the rapture. Whether you're one who rises first from your grave or whether you're one of those lucky ones who remains alive and is caught up in the air. Get your mind around it. It's going to happen. You're going to be part of it. And you need to be eagerly awaiting it. Looking forward to it. 
for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself.